Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So this is Inside LA um, Sunday Sit here at Sacred Roots, and the topic today is spiritual urgency. Spiritual urgency. It's kind of my favorite topic because if we don't have like any urgency, then we don't do anything. <laughs> it doesn't matter what technique or anything, the teachings or nothing like that. Then. If we don't have motivation, then it's, you know, don't have, there's just really nothing else that comes after that, right? So we need, we need to have spiritual urgency kind of first, and then everything goes from there. And I think it'll kind of help today. We'll break up into groups at some point and just, I think it's, it's different for everybody. Like, why, why are we doing this? You know, what, what motivates us to do it? Everyone comes with something a little bit different, but... We have some common denominator that we live in Southern California and all this awesome stuff to do. It's a pretty beautiful day, and we're all in a dark room sitting, doing nothing. <laughs> so there's something to this. Um, I think one thing is that there's a spiritual urgency. So we have other urgencies like in our life, like um, I need to go shopping today. It's pretty urgent, you know, like I'm out of groceries for like a long time. <laughs> um, so I better go take care of that. That's urgent. You know, it's like, um, so we have certain worldly ur- urgencies, you know, and, and they can kind of take over. So it's like, kind of depends on what world we're living in. When we say spiritual urgency, what's this mean? You know, like this, our spiritual life, our spiritual world, well, you know, this external world kind of takes over, right? It seems so like um, one thing after the, next, after the next becomes very urgent. You know, I need to do this, I need to do that. I need to clean the house, I need to whatever, right? So we're, we're outwardly, we're living in this outer world. You know, Trigam Chupo would say, no, Ergen Rinpoche would say, the difference between samsara and nirvana is a direction that you're looking the difference between samsara and nirvana is the direction that you're looking if you're looking outside then you're in samsara if you're looking inside you're in nirvana but one thing that he was pointing to is that when we're in our turning inside you know into awareness into compassion into everything that's inside that's into our spiritual world, right? We're turning, we're turning inward into nirvana. And so I think part of this um, spiritual urgency is, is that, that turning inward to find out of obviously what's, what's inside of us, but to move from this place. So it's not really urgent. In other words, if we're in the world, things become very urgent, like this, this, and this, but if we're actually not even paying attention to what's inside, there's no urgency. It, it just becomes our entire world is just the outer world. And even our, our kind of our spiritual life, 
can become used, it, we kind of use it for the world, you know, and our egoic advantages and things like this. Because we're not really living inside of it. Everything, even our spiritual life is used, you know, to, um, to advance us in some way in the world. Ajahn Chah one time was giving a teaching and this woman asked him a very intellectual question, a very philosophical intellectual question about some of the very, very, very deep philosophical teachings of the Buddha. Almost in a sense of pride that she had grasped, you know, this, this aspect of the teaching, that she could even speak about it. And he was known for very, being very blunt. He wasn't trying to make any friends. He was trying to you know, make you feel good. He was just there to liberate you. So he said in front of everybody, he said, you know, dear one, he's like, you're, you're someone who, you're, you're like someone who has chickens, but goes outside in the morning and collects the shit instead of the eggs. And so what he was pointing to is that even even our spiritual life, it can be turned in the, in the wrong way into our egoic pursuits. You know, instead of taking the teachings and using it for liberation, we could use the teachings, we could make use of the teachings, but then actually think that we're going to use them just to further ourselves in the world. Which, with the right view, you know, this is fine too. Yeah, if it releases some, relieves some suffering, some worldly suffering, that's no problem. Not, not a problem at all. But of course, that's not the end. That's not the end goal, right? Well, the end goal is, is uh, liberation, not just another temporary state of goodness, you know? So this spiritual urgency, you know, I have a favorite teaching for this, which I talk a about a lot, so I'm not going to go too deeply into them, but I want to make mention of them. My favorite teaching is the four thoughts that turn the mind towards Dharma. So how many people can, can um, what are the four thoughts, maybe expound upon that a moment. What are the four thoughts that turn the mind towards Dharma? Precious human life, yep, that's number one. And, and what do we like to think of specifically about this precious human life as regards to practice? What a gift it is that we can actually practice. What a gift it is that we can actually practice. And what makes it a gift that we could actually practice? Like, Well, that's the second one. I still want to stay with this one for a moment. <laughs> She's jumping ahead. <laughs> what do we like to contemplate? That we have the freedom to do so. That we have the freedom to do so. And this freedom of being born a human being is that we have self-awareness. That even this is, is, is rare. So like the base, the base teaching is you know, even having a human life is really rare. And of course, it's kind of more into a belief system, but the Buddha would say that having a human life is, is so rare and precious. It's like a sea turtle that comes up 
takes a breath every hundred years. And it would be like likelihood that that sea turtle taking that one breath every hundred years would actually take a breath and put its head right through in like an inner tube. The text would say a yoke, which would be like the yoke they used to put animals in. But it'd be like the, the, the turtle would breathe right in the ocean there, right in the inner tube. Like how lucky would that be? Like what, how rare that is that? So this would be like being born human. That's how rare it is. So just having a human birth and we have this self-awareness. Yeah. So that's number one. What are some other attributes? What, why would we reflect on how rare this is? Well, think of the causes and conditions that brought us here today. Right? So we can go through them really quickly. Is that if you hear that there's a teaching that, can, that, that liberates you from the inside out, just hearing that, that's extremely rare. right? That it resonates with you, that's even more rare because how many of us have acted like, or not acted like, but have told people about <laughs> the teachings and they look at you like, what are you doing on Sunday morning? Or, you know, that, that's so, uh, I don't get it. Um, so that they have some kind of resonance, that's even more rare, that they have resonance. Not only that, but you have some motivation for practice. Isn't that rare? <laughs> <laughs> that you have motivation for practice is even more rare. That you actually practice. Like you might have motivation, but again, you have to go to the store, da da da, everything takes precedence, right? Mm -hmm. So that you actually sit, that's even more rare. Well, let's say that you had all the mo motivation and you wanna sit, but that you have the environment. That's even more rare. So look at this, why are we all here, right? We're, we're here because it's supportive. We have a really conducive environment. It's not always the case. Is your home always like perfectly ready for you to meditate? <laughs> probably not. We probably don't live in those types of environments, right? So we notice that it's even more rare. That you have a, a mind and body that is healthy enough to practice. That's even more rare. Yeah? So think of all those causes and conditions that have to come together for a moment, like one single moment of practice. All those have to come together. So reflecting on this is highly motivating. Yeah? Because we are motivated by things that are very, um, yeah, very rare. You notice that the more rare something is, the more precious precious it is. I like to look at seagulls. I love seagulls. And I, they're, they're beautiful. If you look at a seagull, if you really look, <laughs> it's a gorgeous bird. It's one of the largest birds in our, in, in our area. Unbelievably beautiful. And yet they're very common. So we don't really look. Now, if there was only a few seagulls left, when you saw a seagull, you'd be like, oh my God, we saw a seagull today. <laughs> and you would really look and pay attention and all this stuff. Yeah. So things that are very rare and precious we become really, really motivated and interested in. So practice is very rare and precious. And so it's even more rare because of what Sue said next, right? Impermanence. Impermanent. Impermanence. Every single thing that we just mentioned is impermanent. So all, any one of those things could change, and guess what? You're not practicing. 
your motivation, you can get busy, your environment, one little health issue, and all of a sudden, gone. Yeah. So contemplating this every day is, for me, the best thing that we could possibly do for spiritual urgency. Spiritual urgency. This life like a dew drop on a blade of grass. We do not know how much longer we have all these causes and conditions. The third one's karma, which is action. Okay, so I have this precious human life. I have all these causes and conditions. It's impermanent. What do I want to do with this moment? Right? What do I want to do? This is action. So if we're wise, we look at cultivating the wholesome and abandoning the unwholesome. Right? And we can just test this out. How does it feel when, we're, when, we, uh, when we cultivate the wholesome? How does it feel when we cultivate the unwholesome? Like anger, <laughs> impatience, envy, jealousy, like all these things. How does that feel? We reflect on that. Pretty simple choice once we reflect on it, right? And what's the fourth one? Anyone remember? Dukkha. Dukkha. What's dukkha? Suffering, but also just the unsatisfactoriness of everything external. There you go. The basic unsatisfactory nature of all external existence. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Aw. So glad I came. How motivating, huh? Yeah. The key word external. Mm-hmm. External existence. And I really like, so the the kind of quick translation is unsatisfactoriness. I like imperfectness, that it's imperfect. Because we are always searching for the next perfect thing, the perfect relationship, the perfect job, the perfect whatever. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And we think this day is going to be perfect, and that's going to be perfect or whatever. But if we say that, you know, that's not going to be perfect, which is true, then we're liberated. And, and what this is pointing to is that this spiritual urgency creates spiritual urgency because we finally get through contemplation. It's really, it really, 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 really isn't out there. Even though our mind will keep telling us every day it's out there. It's going to come together. It's going to get better. It's, gotta go, it's all going to come together. It's going to happen. It's all going to mesh. All my relationships and my job and my, and my health and everything. Oh, it's just going to, oh, it's perfect. It's perfect. Oh, it's not. And even if it was, it's temporary. Even if it, even if it all, da, 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 you know, it's like that one wheel on a shopping cart. It's a, you know, life is like that. There's always some jacked up wheel. <laughs> and you're lucky if you have one. You know, you might have two or three messed up wheels. And and to say that this is this is the reality of it, and and I'm okay with that. You know, if we kind of get in the groove of it, then there's no dissonance. So this, that's not a problem. You know, having things that are not perfect are not a problem unless we have a resistance to it, right? Then that becomes a suffering part. That's the dukkha. The dukkha is actually not that, not that things are not perfect. The dukkha is that I want them to be. That's the dukkha. Yeah. Are we allowed to ask questions? Um, there'll be a question later, but I mean, if it's... Oh, this may be a little too long, then I would later. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so, 
the, these four thoughts, I just want to throw them out there, is that we need to, there, there is no, there is no one thing that kind of builds this spiritual urgency. It has to become an internal something, you know, that we're really connected to. And I think that when we actually get on board with suffering, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a coincidence that the Buddha's, you know, first teaching was that, you know, there's, there's suffering. And I think that for him, it's really interesting. And we look at the stories of people that are highly motivated for practice. And I can kind of, I'm going to go through a few right now. But I think Buddha's story is quite unique in that he didn't come from suffering. If you, if you look at most people that are really inspired for practice come from suffering. But Buddha was <clears throat> unique in that he came from everything. He you know, was Prince Siddhartha, had everything to... He had a good samsara. That guy could have just chilled out and had a great samsara and died. you know. But he was exposed to old age, sickness, and death when he left the palace gates. But he was exposed in a very unique way. And I think this was the reason why it hit home really hard for him and maybe not so much like I speak for myself. It wasn't like, you know, this huge hit maybe. Is that he came from not thinking old age, sickness, and death even existed, you know, because they kept him so, you know, contained. And that when he saw it, it was a shock. He's like, wow, what the heck is this? You know, and he turned it to his attendant and said, you know, am I going to experience this? And they said, yeah, you know, everyone, I mean, at least some of them, right? Maybe not old age, but the sickness and death or the death part, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so he's like, oh, wow, you know, I really want to be liberated from this. And it reminds me of the, the fact that if you probably all of you have heard this, where you, if you drop a frog into hot water and, the, and it's super hot, the, job, the frog will jump out. But if you slowly turn up the heat on the frog, the frog doesn't know that it's suffering and it, it'll, it'll just die, you know. Sad, but um, that's kind of like us, you know. The heat is just on, I mean, unless we have some really r real intense suffering, it could be like this. It could be like, oh, the heat's just on a little bit. You know, I, I can't really feel it. I really don't know. And I think this is what the Buddha, in the first noble truth, is that, hey, wake up. You know, this craving, grasping mind, you know, there's suffering here. But for whatever that is, we need to find it. Um, the story of uh, Milarepa, we talked about this last weekend at the um, Beria Energy Retreat about, about this. And I will say just before I tell the story that the energy for the practice, so in the seven factors we have mindfulness, investigation, energy, you know, energy when you have that energy for the practice, then that brings upon the joy, and that goes to the calm and the concentration and the equanimity. The energy for the practice and the motivation for the practice is really an unfoldment. You know, it's an unfoldment. In other words, there's no like energy source out there, and we could think the effort for the for the practice. There's no energy source where we meditate and get like all of a sudden this motivation comes and, and whatnot. Where there's a technique for it, it's an unfoldment of the practice. Right? So we need, it's more of a mental, we need to get ourselves to the cushion more from the mental mind. We need to convince ourselves of it, right? It just doesn't come 
as an uprising. There's not a technique that we could do other than these contemplations, right? I mean, there's like prana practices that we could do like energy in that way, but we need to have some kind of hook that hooks us. So the story of Milarepa, for example. So Milarepa, you know, his, his uncle, um, his uncle stole all of their land and money, if you know the story of Milarepa. And so he was taught to, to revenge his uncle. He was taught black magic. And so he learned black magic. And when he went to take revenge on his uncle, there were a lot of people in the home. And he, he, he made the, this, this home crumble. And so he killed a lot of people that were in the home. And so he thought in, in that you know, type of teaching in the Tibetan tradition, they do talk a lot about the hell realms and stuff like this. So in, in Milarepa's mind, he's like, wow, if I don't overcome this karma in this lifetime, I'm going to go to a hell realm. Right? So I better, I better practice and reach enlightenment. And of course, you know, in our, <laughs> we don't need to think, Oh, I'm going to go to a hell realm to practice. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's inspiring that he, he, what, he had that hook. You know, he had that hook. Like, this, his, his back was against a wall. Like, I have to do it. You know, in his mind, he had to do it. If not, there was going to be these consequences. Right? And he was able to overthrow that negative karma and reach enlightenment in, in a single lifetime. But I think about us in like the this like in a more worldly sense, like we have to have this thing that motivates us to, to move forward. I heard a story recently of of a businessman who started out in real estate and his first couple years in real estate weren't going very well at all and he was thinking about quitting. And there's this new guy that came in the office and he was just doing really, really well. And he learned that this this new guy came from a checkered past. He didn't finish high school. Uh, he had a baby at 17. He, he got, his girlfriend got pregnant at 17. And somehow he was finding out a way to, to really make it. And so he ended up going to the guy and just being honest, like, hey, how are you doing this? Like, it's incredible, you know? And he said the guy got very defensive and he says, I'm not telling you shit. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you anything. But what, what he said, he said, I saw it in the guy's eyes. Like, like he, he was back up against the wall. Like, he didn't want to go back to that old life. Like, he couldn't go back. Like, it wasn't an option for him. He said, for me, I was comfortable. I came from a middle-class family. I had my family to fall back on. I, my back was against the wall, but I saw it in this guy's eyes. Was like just that almost fear, you know? Like I, I'm, I'm not gonna tell you shit. Like you're on your own, and he, he had that. Actually, I worked with a with a guy who's kind of similar story um, at the uh, at the mental health clinic that. When he was a teenager, he got a job at UPS, and he had so much anxiety that he couldn't 
almost function at work. He said the anxiety was so bad, somebody would tell him their address. So here's my package, here's my address, and you know this is where I want the package to go, right? Here's the address where I want it to go. He said, I couldn't even function enough to put the address in, so I would just throw the box <laughs> in the bin. I would just throw it in the bin. He's like, obviously, I got fired. <laughs> and, um, and he said, in that moment, I realized I can never work for anybody else. Like, I have to work for myself. And he says, you know, from that moment on, I would wake up in the morning and I would say, this has to work. And he is a very successful businessman. He's a big developer. Actually, there's a lot of stuff around here that you see that he's developed. He was a developer on really big projects. He's played golf with Tiger Woods and, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, he's very successful. But he would tell me even even up recently, he always wakes up thinking, like, I might not have it. Like, like I have to do it. Like, I have to do it. And so the reflection is, is like, why are we doing this? Is it, it, does it have that kind of zeal to it? We need to figure it out. And I think those contemplations of, like, the dukkha and stuff, it's like, okay, it's not out here, you know, that, that it's in here. And we have to have faith. And we have to have faith in the attainability of it. You know, I think this is an important part, is that I could do it. You know, I could do it. I could, I could attain freedom. Freedom is within me that I could do it. Up to the point where we have that, that motivation, like Buddha, when he sat beneath the Bodhi tree, and he said, this is it. Like, this is it. Like, I could attain enlightenment right here, right now. You know? So we have to have that type of, of motivation for practice. So, how am I doing on time? Um, let me read a little something. A lion was taken into captivity and thrown into a concentration camp where, to his amazement, he found other lions who had been there for years, some of them all of their lives, for they had been born there. He soon became acquainted with the social activities of the camp and lions. They abandoned themselves into groups. One group consisted of the socializers. Another was, another was into show business. Another was cultural for its purpose was to carefully preserve the customs, the tradition, and the history of the times when lions were free. Other groups were religious. They gathered mostly to sing moving songs about a future jungle where there would be no fences. Some groups attracted those who were literally literary and artistic by nature. Others still were revolutionary, and they met to plot against their captors or against their revolutionary groups or other revolutionary groups. Every now and then, a revolution 
would break out. One particular group would be wiped out by another, or the guards would all be killed and replaced by another set of guards. As he looked around, the newcomer observed one lion, who always seemed deep in thought, a loner who belonged to no group and mostly kept away from everyone. There was something strange about him that commanded everyone's admiration and everyone's hostility, for his presence aroused fear and self-doubt. He said to the newcomer, Join no group. These poor fools are busy with everything except what is essential. And what is that? asked the newcomer. Studying the nature of the fence. So we're not studying the nature of the fence. <laughs> you know, we're not studying the nature of, of, imprison, of imprisonment. And to go along with that, kind of this story reminded, these two reminded me of each other. When I began practicing from a young age, so this is um, Tejaniya. When I began practicing from a young age, I really started practicing at home in the midst of much suffering. I was in constant pain, and sleep was my only rest. Every morning I woke up, and the difficulty started again. I did not communicate much at the time. The only question I asked myself at the time was, why is the mind suffering? So this is like the fence, right? He's paying attention to the fence. Like, why is my mind suffering? This question really motivated me to keep watching the mind all the time. At first, it was just suffering. I do want to say something real quick, is that when we're suffering this pain, there's obviously this tendency to, to try to fix what's outside. Yeah. So to turn inward like this takes so much self-awareness. Just saying, you know, why is the mind suffering? Not how can I change the, the, the external conditions that are, that are making that arise, but why is the mind suffering? This question really motiva motivated me to keep watching the mind all the time. At first it was just suffering and I didn't know why. But slowly, from watching that continuously, awareness and samadhi grew, and the mind became more and more peaceful. There was less suffering. When the mind began to have more and more peace, then I made peace the main object for my awareness. This is beautiful. Peacefulness became the anchor for my mind. Knowing the peaceful mind, I was also aware of everything else that was happening in the mind. I wasn't interested in whatever level of wisdom I had achieved. I understood that if I were mindful, there would be some relief. I knew that whenever I meditated, the depression was reduced a little, a little. I understood that much. I kept an eye on the peacefulness and on whether it was being maintained or disturbed with whatever contact there was with the external or internal experiences. When you are aware of a peaceful mind, it continues to be peaceful. It becomes more and more peaceful. When you aren't aware of the peaceful mind, then the mind starts breaking down into chaos. So I just like how those two tied in about, you know, minding the fence. The fence is our own mind, not what's out there. Remember, out there is imperfect. If we realize that. If not, then we're continually trying to fix what's out there. 
it was just it's never fixed you know we can't control anybody or causes and conditions but we could definitely control our reaction to them yeah all right so i thought it would be nice and beneficial if we if we get into smaller groups like two or three and um just talk about what motivates you and maybe you're new to the practice and and whatnot but you're here right and um when we talk about like what's your wall you know maybe you you came into this from some sort of like wanting a relief from suffering um or just basic unsatisfactoriness that's what happened for me i just looked around and i said this can't be it this can't be it you know maybe it's just unsatisfactoriness and of course you could be as open or vague as you like and just but i think it really helps to see in this in this topic there's not one thing this spiritual urgency it's not just one thing right we all need to look within, so it might be nice to share from, or hear from one another to see what that might be for them. So go ahead. All right. Anyone would like to share? Also questions? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you probably forgot now. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to weigh what you said about imperfection and everything's imperfect and there's always this squeaky wheel. H how do I sit with that and also sit with believing that I, I deserve to have my, my needs and wants met, but also sitting with the, the relation of job not, is, will, will not ever be perfect and will not be 100%? How, how, how do I sit with that? With your, your needs being met? Needs and wants being met. Your needs and wants being met. Um, well, there's nothing wrong with the compassion of, of wanting and desiring your needs and wants to be met. I think that the, the rub there is the attachment part and what are those needs and expectations? What, what are they? Do they go against reality? You know, if you, if you, let's say my needs and wants are permanent, sustainable happiness from my partner who waits on me hand and foot and never changes. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that, that they are an impermanent, interdependent being and this is not... It's in conflict with reality, you know? And so, and, and I think that, you know, when we talk about this in, in perfectness, sometimes we could move into like a, a nihil, we're not talking about non-passion, non-action or nothing like this. So I like the term passionate non-attachment. So, and it, this goes with the compassion for ourselves too. It's like we are, we're compassionate and we're striving to take care of ourselves and take care of the beings in our live and lives and and with play mind and non-attachment mind maybe playing to to um, you know move into a bigger home you know because we need want, want more want more space and part of that is to be able to have more space to to meditate or this and that right so we have the passion to do that and also the wisdom of non-attachment saying that things are, I'm, I'm an interdependent being. In other words, I'm not the entire universe. There's a lot of moving parts in here, right? So I could do my part and effort in that way, just like when we try to take care of others too. Like a parent wants that being to be perfectly happy and, and whatnot all the time. I mean, is that gonna happen? No, no. but does that mean you, you try any less? No. no, right? You have that compassionate heart that is going and moving towards you know wishing for that and the heart becomes extremely resilient when we have the wisdom that that knows that that's not always going to be the case if we don't have the wisdom we're crushed at every blow like 
oh, my child's not happy, you know, I'm not happy. It's like, but if we realize, oh, it's imperfect, then I can keep striving with that compassionate heart because I have the wisdom behind it. Does that help a little bit? Or? Okay. Casey, I was thinking... In, <laughs> I was thinking in terms of, like, let's say, striving to get to the highest part of samsara and then striving to get to the highest part of nirvana. So you're always pulling outwardly and inwardly trying to make it a more perfect thing. I mean, and I know there's a big problem with that also, but a lot of people are always striving to get to the top of samsara. Yes. What's out there. Right. And then there's a part of you that wants to strive to get to the top of nirvana, what's inside of you. Mm -hmm. So doing that, you're always making advancement in a sense, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, are you saying that, that that's kind of balancing those two worlds? If no, because no, I think they're separate in a sense, yeah. but they're also intertwined. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think that I think it's just, just the knowing, and depending on what kind of balance you want to put towards the nirvana side, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, I mean, in a way that they're not intertwined, I mean, I mean that they're not separate, you know, that we could, we could, well, it depends if we're talking outer and inner separateness, but from the, from the inner, inner side that we could, we could rest completely in, in nirvana as we build that samsaric mm -hmm. achievements or mm -hmm. whatever you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like we could we could do that in in pure awareness and in pure mm -hmm. w wisdom mind. You know, there's there's these you know famous stories of beings that are fully enlightened and then they manifest you know these you know, um, outward uh, amazing things as well, but in in a fully enlightened mm -hmm. you know way. But I think the point is is like if we have the knowledge of the two, mm -hmm. this is the most important thing because we just don't even give any nourishment or attention usually to the inner world. I mean, most of us are just, you know, always out there. So even even just that, oh my gosh, that it exists, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that I should maybe feed this this too. It's just amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it seems like there's, the story that you told today about the guy, I don't remember his name, but he like, Learned black magic to get revenge on his uncle and killed a bunch of people. Yeah. And then was basically uh, yeah. And then was like, oh man, I need to like make up for it so that I don't go to hell. And then like, you know, the lion that's sitting there like, look at all these idiots looking at the like trying to break, you know. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of compassion there, you know. And and like also with just the the whole. Yeah, it just seems like there's there there might there's it seems like the whole balance or the whole idea or, or the way that that um, trying to get yourself to the mat was explained or or trying to find motivation was kind of opposed to compassion for others. Mm. Maybe I'm misreading that. Though. Well, I I think that the compassion for others comes after. Okay. You know, like a lot of the times we get here from very selfish motivations, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, 
that the compassion actually is the path. Mm -hmm. So it's the way out. Okay. You know, it's like that's the action. And then so the first motivation is like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And so if we reflect in awareness, we see how selfish we are, for example, and we see the suffering of that unwholesomeness. And then, then that wakefulness is the teacher. Well, what's the opposite of that? What was cultivating the wholesome? Oh, love and kindness and compassion. Mm -hmm. And so this is the path. So the, how they got out, so how Milarepa got out was the Bodhisattva vow, may I attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Okay. So that's how he got out. But, if, but his first ignition into, oh my gosh, I have to find a way out, was the opposite of what he did, was, was the fear, you know? So it started out selfish, but then led him to compassion and, and right. goodness. Yeah, his whole tradition, the Mahayana tradition, is based upon the Bodhisattva vow. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually the vow is that they actually never reach full enlightenment. In other words, they never stop incarnating until all beings are free. So that was like the vow throughout all of that time when he was practicing. But wonderful point you know, to bring in, like where's the compassion and all that. Yeah, wonderful. Um, yeah, and then, sorry. Oh, sorry. I first sought out meditation for selfish, shallow reasons. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be smarter and concentrate better. Yeah. Totally the whole reason I should have. Yeah, I'm still like that. <laughs> <laughs> the smarter thing's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just wanted to add to John's question about, you know, you can have striving for, you know, external... Um, possessions or achievements, and then it seems like you can have spiritual striving for, you know, internal states or mental balance or achievements or whatever it is. And, you know, I definitely had a lot of spiritual striving when I kind of started on the path, and I really liked what you said in response to this woman here about the idea of, you know, play mind or a non-attachment mind didn't understand how that functions in the external world and kind of 20 years down the path, I think of applying that to, to the internal world as well. And there's a sense of play and um, non-attachment to the spiritual practices or uh, internal mind states as well. So there's kind of more ease going out and going in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the, the, the same attitude of play mind yeah. moves into the spiritual world right. as well. Yeah, there's a, a famous story of um, this Zen master and his student, and the student goes off and meditates and comes back and is supposed to check in, you know. And um, so he checks in and says, it's going, it's going really well. You know, my meditations are going well. And the master's like, oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, Six months later, he comes back and says, oh my gosh, I'm really stabilizing, my mind's stabilizing, this is incredible. And the master's like, oh, darn. <laughs> comes back again, I'm in a blissful state. This is, you know, I'm, I'm really, really getting to the heart of the practice. And so the Zen master's about to lose it, you know, and he's like, so upset, you know. And so then he doesn't hear from him for a long time, doesn't hear from the student for a long, long time. And he has to check back in, and he says, you know, you're supposed to be checking in with with me after so long, right? And so then he he checks back in, he says, how's it going? And the student writes back, who cares? <laughs> and he says, finally. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and 
that's pointing to yeah the the non-attachment of, of the practice so yeah great great point is that and, and oftentimes we we do the opposite we, we bring in that striving mind and say oh i'm just going to apply that same thing here you know and, and it's going to work out and The, with that, the immediately went, the way I was first taking that question over here was the, that striving, like if I'm striving in samsara, then bringing that striving inward and how that doesn't work. And it reminded me of a cartoon I saw recently. It was like type A, type B personality. Yeah. And it was like the type B, the type A is like, oh, and then type B is like, why don't you stop and smell the flowers? And then the next panel is like, Shows a type A with a trophy of best flowers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's so great. I'll share one about sure, that, yeah, what we were yeah. sharing about. Um, there were, I noticed when we were sharing, um, the first thing up was where I had been against my wall. Um, but the thing that, uh, so then I shared about that and then we went around again on, and there's this piece about urgency of practice of getting to know the practice and getting to know my practices and then in the absence of them, like watching things sort of fall apart <laughs> mm-hmm. in the absence of like the form of the thing that I'm wanting, just like, mm-hmm. you know, I'll wake up later or I won't be as disciplined or my emotions will be messier. And so there's becomes this urgency to 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 like to stay in the practice. Uh, mm-hmm. She was saying it's like a it's like the gears, and when mm-hmm. the gears are off, the the chain isn't working. And mm-hmm. Everything starts to sort of melt away in a way. Mm-hmm. So there's this urgency of, of moving towards this deeper yeah. peace. Yeah, and it reminds me of one of the you know, the wise efforts, you know, the effort to maintain the wholesome. Mm. And so we need, you know, different energy for the practice and in, in different ways to prevent the uprising of the unwholesome, to abandon right. the unwholesome, you know, to cultivate the wholesome and then to maintain the wholesome. Mm. And, and again, and what, what drives all this is mindfulness, right? Because if you didn't have the mindfulness that to watch, mm-hmm. When you're when the main maintaining of the wholesome starts to to wane, you're like you're watching that and you're like oh, and that just brings everything back. You know, it's like okay, I've got to bring more energy into maintaining this. You know. All right, maybe let's just dedicate the merit real quick. back to the beginning when we contemplating contemplated how rare and precious it is to be able to practice to be able to turn inward to be able to be in a supportive environment fellow practitioners people that are trying this is a sangha others that are trying just like you supporting one another in that effort. So think for a moment 
of our human sangha, our community, our neighborhoods, our country, and all the human race and all the other beings, big and small. And not all of them have experienced today this preciousness this rare opportunity to be still. So dedicating the merit to them, all the goodness, the wisdom, love, compassion, kindness, insights, anything that has arisen that is positive and good. Sharing that merit with all beings. All beings everywhere, without exception. May they all be happy and free from suffering. Om Mani Padme Hum. Just listen to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.